Welcome to the second part of this COVID-19 podcast, where we are talking to Professor Tim Cook, who previously talked about the upscaling of hospital resources that will be required to manage this disease and the challenges that we face in doing that. We will continue straight on and hear about the new guidance about airway management of COVID-19 patients, which Professor Cook has been involved in developing along with the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, Intensive Care Society, the Association of Anaesthetists and the Royal College of Anaesthetists. So coming around to the procedural side of intubating a suspected coronavirus patient, what are the key principles in minimising the risk to both the staff and the patient? Various organisations felt that it was important to have some central guidance on uh, how to manage these critically ill patients, many of whom will require uh, intubation for establishing critical, uh, well, establishing um, ventilation of the lungs, uh, and some of whom will require airway management for uh, intercurrent illnesses. Uh, So starting from the principles of uh, safety both for the patient and for staff, we've developed uh, guidelines which are published on the uh, information hub that is run by anaesthesia intensive care overarching bodies and those guidelines um, aim to protect staff, enable staff to do what is safest for them and patients as efficiently and promptly as possible. So many of the airway procedures that are undertaken are deemed aerosol generating. They will expose uh, staff involved uh, to risk of infection themselves and these patients are sick. So any we know that any Uh, a patient who requires intubating because of a severe respiratory illness is at risk of significant deterioration. And so both those factors have to be taken into account at the same time. So, (coughs) excuse me, so we've drawn up these these guidelines. Um, There is a document uh, which those interested uh, might wish to read, which gives sort of the background information and I hope is uh, informative. But there are a relatively small number of Um, as it were, takeaways or uh, key uh, reference points which which hopefully will be useful face-to-face. And those include a new checklist for intubation that has uh, five rather than normal four pillars, as it were. So protecting the staff, the first one, personal protective equipment and planning the team, then preparing equipment, which all happens outside the room, planning and preparing for difficulty so that every member of the team knows what's what's going to happen if there is problems and then going into the room and optimizing the patient uh, undertaking the procedure and immediate post-intubation optimization and ventilation and then the the last pillar being post-procedures actions and safety so for instance there are specific things about not just ventilation but also uh, airway and, and tracheal tube management after intubation avoid inadvertently contaminating the area, the nursing staff, the doctors in there, and then safe doffing of PP as, as people leave the room and followed by cleaning the room afterwards. So there's a lot, there's actually a, quite a lot of detail in this checklist, but hopefully that will be uh, useful. In terms of actual specific procedures, I've coined this term SAS, which may or may not be a sensible thing to have done. So it's um, safe, accurate, and swift. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you need, the airway management needs to be safe for staff, all staff involved and patient. So that we need, we need PPE on, we need the minimum number of people, we need to use safe techniques. Mm-hmm. It needs to be accurate and by that I mean that techniques should be used which are 
uh, effective and reliable, but also in circumstances of difficulty. There, there won't be the opportunity to, to just pop out the room to get a bit more kit, etc. So, so using techniques which have a high success rate, even in the face of unexpected difficulty, intrinsically difficult patients seem to be sensible. So we, we're strongly advocating uh, use of videolaryngoscopy, which enables probably safer intubation, but also slightly more distant intubation. We're avoiding things such as high-flow nasal oxygen for multiple reasons, avoiding face mask ventilation unless necessary, and when doing it, doing it in a manner which minimizes airway leak. And if rescuing the airway, if there's a problem using a second-generation suprotic airway because it's likely to be more reliable in rescuing the airway and also less prone to leak around the airway. Um, and then the last aspect is swift. So that was originally speedy, but speedy sounds like rushing and swift sounds better. So being efficient and swift and getting the act done in a, in a, in a time, so not delaying from the start, but also not rushing. Uh, so safe, accurate and swift is the uh, acronym. Mm. Oh, I like that. That's interesting you bring up the point of a second generation uh, supraglottic airways. So I know that some hospitals, they, they've specifically gone for, in the initial uh, equipment trolley, um, a normal classical LMA. Yeah, so the, the classical LMAs tend to have slightly lower airway seal. And if you're dealing with a patient, so most, well, a classic LMA has an airway seal of about 18 to 20 centimetres of water. So will only ventilate maybe 30 or 40% of these patients if you put it in. There are, the, the, the advantages of the second generation supraglottic airway devices in this setting is probably their improved seal. So a Supreme, an iGel, a ProSeal, a LMA Protector, an Ambu or a Gain, they all have higher seals and therefore they're more likely to succeed in, in ventilating these patients who have got intrinsic lung disease. Um, and therefore going to have low compliance and less likely to have a leaky um, airway seal and be um, perhaps aerosolizing mm -hmm. virus when, um, during ventilation. Do you tape over the uh, suction port, which I presume might leak out aerosolized particles? The, si the simple answer is I don't think anybody knows about that. It would be a nice study for someone uh, to look at. doesn't seem an unreasonable thing to do. If you've got a good quality um, airway, then you should be simply uh, ventilating the airway, not the esophagus, and therefore they shouldn't be uh, coughing and spluttering uh, coming out of the um, out of the supraglottic airway uh, drain port. I don't think anybody's really grasped the um, the intricacies of difficult airway management uh, during what are these now called merit intubation teams, which is mobile emergency response intubation teams. We've got as far as airway management in most settings. But uh, what I would imagine is that the episode of airway management needs to be completed wherever it takes place. So if um, intubation fails, and one would hope that this would be a rare occurrence with, a, with, a, with the most skilled operator undertaking the technique, with prediction of difficulty, with primary use of videolaryngoscopy, then you'd expect that, that failed intubation would be rare. Mm -hmm. If, however, it fails and you rescue the area with a supraglottic airway, then the, um, the reaction um, after that is to decide one of three things. Can I wake the patient up, which is frankly going to be pretty unlikely, but is not necessarily ruled out. Second, um, can I intubate through the supraglottic airway? If you can, then probably do it there. And if not, should I proceed to the front of neck airway? Uh, so I think those are the three options.
Yeah, so, okay, so you just crack on and get a definitive airway. I, I think it's, I think it's super... really difficult. There's, yeah. there's quite, quite understandably, in every trust, people are trying to plan, and intensivists and anaesthetists are people who like to solve problems, and so people are making plans, um, all of which slightly differ uh, in trust A, B, C, and D, and the aim of rapidly publishing this, this the airway guidance was to improve reliability and consistency, hopefully by having multiple people review it, um, ensure that it was based on evidence, that there weren't any sort of slips in it that enabled things that weren't very sensible to go into it, um, and um, enables really to be, you know, literally all be on the same page. But I completely understand why individual um, hospitals are producing their own local guidance, and this applies not just to area management, but to all, all aspects. And there's a fairly urgent need for uh, national um, uh, practice guidance and guidelines to be disseminated. And that is in, in, in progress. These guidelines usually take two years to produce. This one was produced and published in six days. And uh, I'd imagine it may be different around different countries in the world. Um, maybe they have healthcare systems where the kit is almost um, uh, the same in every hospital. But I'd imagine that's sure. a problem that exists basically everywhere that sure. each hospital has their own kit. And to be honest, the, the aim is that this is that this guidance is adaptable. Um, so we will, I hope this afternoon, be now we've finalised the um, uh, checklist, for instance, be putting that in an editable form on the information hub um, to enable people to download it and change it as suits them. And it may be that, so for instance, we recommend that there are three team members during intubation that there's the, not necessarily the senior, but the, the best skilled intubator is the airway manager, that there's an assistant applying cricoid force and uh, helping with equipment, and then there's a third member of the team who is giving the drugs um, and monitoring the patient um, and is able to help with other actions that need to happen, for instance, if there's a cardiac arrest. But when we are, or rather if there is a uh, epidemic of the of the proportions that that means that we're overwhelmed then that those three members may need to be reduced to two members but for the time being we're recommending three members this can be adapted according to need um, as time goes by but i don't think that the state we're at at the moment there's a need uh, to reduce the workforce to just two people intubating mm-hmm. you, you just raised one point which i did want to ask you about at some point emergency teams responding to cardiac arrest calls is is the advice to put full PPE on as if this patient may have coronavirus? Yeah, the Resuscitation Council have made a statement on on this, um, and uh, this was about a week ago, um, which is on their their website, so this is RCUK, mm-hmm. and uh, it's entitled, I think, Guidance on CPR in Patients with COVID-like Illness or a Confirmed uh, COVID-19. Um, it will be more difficult as a greater proportion of the population uh, may have COVID to know how to respond. Um, but the guidance is that healthcare staff should um, put on their PPE uh, before initiating CPR. So that does mean that there may be a delay in starting CPR um, and that delay is minimised by both having PPE available and by the staff who may need to use it being thoroughly briefed and aware of what they need to do. But we do yeah. need to preserve the, the staff. So there is there is little merit in staff exposing themselves to significant risk and then becoming ill uh, because 
during the time that they're becoming ill and then are ill, uh, they represent a threat to uh, not only themselves but to other patients and to other staff members um, while they're incubating and then um, spreading the virus. Mm-hmm. And then similar to the uh, intensive care team going and intubating a sick respiratory uh, failure patient, thinking about a surgical patient who's going to need to come to theatre for an emergency surgery, um, whether it's an appendix or, or laparotomy or whatever it is, if they have a respiratory illness, I imagine that's got quite a lot of challenges in terms of um, logistics of intubating them, putting them asleep and post-operative care. What would your advice be on this or um, is there national guidance on this? So in terms of managing patients who um, are present for, that do not need intensive care treatment but need surgery, who have um, or suspected have um, COVID disease, there is guidance um, on the PHE, Public Health England website, um, which is updated uh, from time to time. It was last updated on the 13th of March. Uh, in broad terms, what that guidance says is that, of course, um, put that patient on the last in the list if possible. The same precautions that would be taken in intensive care should be taken for airway management. The current advice is that those precautions may be relaxed somewhat 20 minutes after what they call intubation, but what I would call airway management, because these patients don't necessarily have to be intubated. But I would recommend that people read the up-to-date guidance, which is available and easily accessible before determining their local policies. Does our management of these cases actually differ from uh, how we would manage influenza-positive patients, which we're used to dealing with on a sort of yearly basis? Or are the main differences um, organisational? I think, um, clearly, on a global level, it's a far more serious um, illness than flu. And therefore, uh, we have to be... Two things. First, we don't have a vaccine to it, and it's a new virus. So none of us will either have partial immunity from previous infections to uh, similar um, uh, viruses. Um, and the threat not just to us, um, but to others, is very significant. And because of the scale from the, the numbers I talked about earlier, there is a much bigger societal threat from cross-infection. And because healthcare workers are particularly at risk of getting it, there's a personal risk as well. And there's possibly evidence that patient that, that as well as um, healthcare staff being more prone to acquiring COVID, that those patients who, those staff who get it may get a more severe illness, perhaps related to a higher viral load. But I think that's, that's slightly speculative. And I think we don't know the answer about that completely. Mm. Um, from the data that we have from, um, I guess, mainly other countries, uh, do we know how many medical and nursing cases and deaths we can actually expect? Um, of what the impact is going to be on our workforce in terms of people self-isolating um, or being ill. Yeah, so the healthcare workers is, there's some data, but it's difficult to interpret. Um, understandably, there's not much data coming out. So in, in the early, smaller studies that came out of China, up to 40% of cases were hospital acquired. And of those cases, two thirds were healthcare workers. So that was almost a quarter of cases were healthcare workers. In the later studies from China, then the infection rate of healthcare workers was about well, was below four percent, I think three point four percent. So there's quite a marked reduction in uh, over time in the 
uh, risk of infection um, to healthcare workers. And one can only assume that um, the systems that were put in place to, re to, re to protect staff were effective. Now, I keep on saying that PPE is just part of a system, but it is. Um, so PPE, appropriate PPE, safe management of PPE, uh, appropriate uh, hand washing and hygiene practices, uh, cleaning rooms, um, disposal of waste, all those factors are equally as important as the kit that you're wearing in PPE. Mm -hmm. What with the early data from um, Italy uh, shows a quite concerning 8% um, of, of the early, early cases um, being healthcare related. So there's concerning information. There have been a very small number of, of deaths amongst healthcare um, workers. Of course, it's quite possible that they've acquired the illness elsewhere and it's not related um, to their work. But obviously, it's a concern for all of us and perhaps we'll have more information in the near future. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think the, mes the message is be aware of the systems in terms of safety, the whole system and PPE, and um, be adherent to it. Mm -hmm. It works. Yeah. It's a reassuring uh, message. Uh, expecting the most experienced or skilled operators to do procedures probably means putting the more at-risk um, healthcare workers uh, in terms of comorbidities and age in the firing line. Um, and I've, I've noticed that locally there's been a really good team spirit in terms of let's try and keep <laughs> uh, our senior you know, consultants and everything out of the firing line. I imagine that's not national guidance, but is that what we kind of expect most hospitals to do is protect our own staff um, above well, you know, a, above all else? Sort of thing. Yeah. Again, it's a really good question. It's a complicated area. So what is, what is not clear is whether, whether certain groups are more at risk of getting the illness or more at risk of becoming ill, severely ill when they get the illness. Mm -hmm. So age is a very important factor. So something like 50% of the deaths in the large studies are in patients over 70, um, but only about 4% of the population. So it's predominantly an illness which affects, which, which, which um, harms uh, the elderly. Older clinicians, of which I'm just about getting there, uh, might be one of, those, one of those risk groups. And in our guidance, um, we've suggested that several factors might be taken into account in deciding on staff who shouldn't be involved in high-risk procedures and amongst those we've included age as a factor so we know that the risk um, of severe illness goes up after 60 but it goes up quite a lot between 60 and 70 we don't really know where the inflection point is mm -hmm. so uh, the list of comorbidities that are associated include uh, chronic respiratory disease and chronic cardiovascular disease or those those are poorly defined hypertension diabetes uh, and previous cancer there is there is an assumption that immunosufficiency and pregnancy are associated with increased risk. I don't think there's any literature on that, but it makes reasonable common sense. Uh, the patients who are immunosuppressed um, and uh, or pregnant uh, can be given other things to do rather than being exposed uh, mm. in high risk situations. Again, it's an evolving area. And I think as we get more information, so the, one of the issues about the the risk factors is that Age is very clearly a risk factor for poor outcome from this illness. And if you're in an older uh, age group, 
you're more likely to have all those comorbidities or some of the comorbidities I suggested. There's only done univariate analyses and so no one's really separated uh, the impact of the comorbidities from age. Uh, and that's a piece of work that probably needs to be done. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a, no, it's going to be a difficult time. The more we work together and uh, are kind to each other and um, considerate of um, our patients and our colleagues from all specialties, uh, the better we'll get through it because it's going to be a difficult time. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for taking time to record the podcast with us. Okay, thanks. Okay. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Well, thank you for listening to the second part of this COVID-19 podcast with Professor Tim Cook. Keep an eye out for further podcasts on this topic by following BJA Journals on Twitter and by checking bjaed.org, where all of our podcasts are archived.